Carol, do you know how long butterflies have existed on the earth? No, I do not. How long have butterflies been around? Well, no one really knows, but we'll talk about this more later in the show. I am looking forward to it. Welcome to the Garden Angelus, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. I'm Carol Michael from Indianapolis, Indiana, where I have a suburban garden measured in square feet. It's about a third of an acre. And I'm Dean Ash from Guthrie, Oklahoma, where I garden on several acres out in the country. We call ourselves Garden Angelus because we are evangelists for gardening. We love gardening and we want others to love it too. Yes, we do. And we aren't afraid to spill the beans and tell all of our gardening secrets, the good, the bad, and this week, even the ugly. But that's enough of who, what, when, where. Let's move on to this week's episode. Hello, Carol. Hello, Dee. So how is your garden? I am still picking lettuce. Uh, strawberries are starting to slow down. I still got a few this morning. Spo- the last of the spinach done bolted and it's going to get thrown out of there. I suckered tomato plants this past weekend. Got everything fertilized again, all the containers. Everything's going good. And I have a couple little tiny pawpaws. Tiny. You, that, I saw that on your Instagram. Yeah, I think I put a story. I need a pawpaw tree. I think it's a host plant for something. I'll have to look that up. You need two pawpaw trees. They have a, they need cross-pollination. Is it that cross-pollination or is it the dioecious thing? It's cross-pollination. There we go. We've been on that for a while. Yeah. You know, when you start to talk about native plants, things get complicated. So I think you need to explain quickly what suckering your tomato plants means. So I grow my tomato plants, the indeterminates, and they just keep growing up, 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 up. So that little shoot that forms in the axle between the leaf and the stem, I prune those off so that I get a nice tall vine, I'll call it. And then I tie that to a stake. And after a bit, I stop suckering, but it gives more light, more air, and you end up with better tomatoes overall. In Indiana. In Indiana. Because yeah. I'm going to say a caveat for Oklahoma and Texas. I do remove some of my suckers just the same as I remove diseased leaves from the bottoms of my tomato plants. Absolutely. I, I am not as uh, vigilant about removing suckers as you are. And it's not just because I'm lazy. It's because here the sunshine is so strong and so hot that it can easily scald tomatoes in a bad year. And so I leave some on to give them a little bit of shade. But I'm very choosy about which ones I leave and how bushy the plant is. But my main message to people in Oklahoma is you need to remove those nasty diseased leaves at the bottom because that will just continue to spread. One of the leaf blights. And there are plenty of them. That's true. I couldn't tell you which one's which. Same in Indiana. You want to remove those diseased leaves. Same thing in Indiana. Um, I was raised to stake my tomatoes and, you know, I always joke about people that cage them or I don't even know. I know you cage and we still associate with one another, but you can have differences and still be friends, right? Actually, I don't just cage. Um, I only, now I only cage my determinate tomatoes, the ones that are going to produce all at once that stay shorter. And I actually have that fence that runs down the center of my old driveway and I uh-huh. stake my tomatoes to it, my indeterminate. There you go. There you go. So I have more to say about my tomatoes at a later time. I've got some observations, but I'm going to save those for a couple of weeks. 
Yeah. I had everything all planted and potted out, and then here came some new trial plants, and I'm not going to complain because it's fun to get them. So I got three new shrubs from Bailey's, and they sent me a hat and a shopping bag and some other goodies. Thank you, Bailey Nursery. I got nine perennials from Darwin Perennials, including three Budlias that are in a series called Chrysalis. They sent a blue one, a pink one, and a cranberry one. And so pink and cranberry get shoved into the pink flower bed on the side of the house. They can duke it out. And blue goes right out front in by my bird feeder, and it can duke it out. I love Bailey Nurseries, and I love Darwin plants. Um, if I don't receive anything from them, it's okay. That's where I received that dwarf lavender was from Darwin, and also where I got the Pop Rocks Fizz, um, I'm going to think it's Spireas, which I'm looking at right now outside of my outside my window. I think that they have really good plants. So I'm excited that you got those. I did get a Betalea this year too from, um, from garden media group. And so from one of their clients and I actually gave it to Megan and planted it and it looks great. So yeah, we'll talk more about Budlia when we talk about our flower topic. Okay. Um, But the other thing is I was going to say one of the, or one of the shrubs that Bailey Nursery sent me last year that I put in the ground in the fall was a lilac called Pink Teeny. And it was not, it's still not very big, but it had some nice pinkish blooms. And I thought, oh, I should have, I should have put that over on the garage side of the house, but it's on the other side of the house. So there's a little window in the fall. Maybe I'll move Pink Teeny. Maybe I won't. But anyway, we shall see. We shall see. D, that is enough about my garden and all my woes, I guess. I don't have any woes. Tell me about your garden. Well, I worked in the garden all day Saturday. I mulched the cut flower beds, which was quite the job because I was working around little tiny flowers that were like an inch and a half to two inches uh-huh. tall. Uh-huh, that's, that's tedious. It was tedious. It took me all morning, which you would think with... I think I have six beds over there. You would think that wouldn't take very long. They're only four by four, but it did. But I got it done, and I'm really happy about that because it rained both Saturday night and Sunday night. Sunday night was a gully washer. And then I also pulled all the bolted lettuce on Saturday. I worked the bees on Sunday, and it was a difficult beekeeper day. One colony may have just killed the queen that I just introduced to them. Because it thinks it has a queen. It does not, but I can't convince them. They have laying workers, which is a very, very difficult thing to fix in a beehive. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do with those. I'm thinking of bad words right now, but, you know, we'll figure that out. I also tied the tomatoes to the fence. Very nice. Yeah, you don't want those those tomatoes to run away, so you tie them up to the fence, right? A little bondage, a little bondage in the driveway. All right, are you going to do our first quote? I am, but I wanted to say, it always seems like you do most of your gardening on the weekends, whereas I try to space it out all through the week. So during the week, I'm pretty busy because I have a job and um, I see clients at their houses and tell them what to do in their gardens. And also I've been writing those articles, which those articles take me longer than they take, Carol. I'm not as fast a writer as you are. Well, that's okay, but it just goes to show you can get a lot done on a weekend or you can use the Carol method, which is a couple of hours, maybe every day or every other day. Although you'd look at my garden and say, I need to do more. 
Well, mine looks a mess right now because it got rained on really hard last night. But um, I also go out and like do a little deadheading during the week because I need breaks from riding. So I walk out there and break for about an hour. So I probably spend more time than I think I do. Okay, now I'm going to do the quote. The monarch butterfly is, in my opinion, the most interesting insect in the world. And that's Miriam Rothschild, the butterfly gardener. Yes, and our flower topic this week is about milkweeds and how milkweeds are not just for monarch butterflies. I think there's kind of a misconception out there that monarchs are the only ones who use milkweed. But a lot of creatures use milkweed. That is true. And there's a lot of milkweeds. There's 200 species of milkweeds, I think they I read somewhere. Yeah, 200 or 270, there's a lot. There's a lot. So, And different milkweeds are native to different parts of the world and different parts of the United States. There's a lot of crossover in native milkweeds, and there are a bunch of milkweeds that are native in Oklahoma. The Kerr Project, the Robert S. Kerr Project, they went in and found all the milkweeds and made a nice spreadsheet. But I, I still see people, there's a lot of confusion about milkweed. You can also use tropical milkweed, for just the summer in both of our climates. That's true. There's a lot of controversy about tropical milkweed because there's been a lot written about Texas and uh, Louisiana where it overwinters and it causes more problems with a, a caterpillar disease called OE. It actually has a really long name. There's also some thought that native milkweeds are better for monarch butterflies because of the amount of toxin within the leaves. I don't have an opinion about that. I grow them all. I mean, not all the milkweeds in the world, but I grow both. I grow native and tropical. I grow, I think they're both native. I grow swamp milkweed. I should have looked it up. And then I grow the regular, I'll call it regular milkweed. Butterfly weed? I'm going to, yeah, regular butterfly weed. weed. I don't have big quantities of butterfly weed. The swamp milkweed, um, it does really take off. We should tell people that there's there's two things that milkweed does for butterflies. Okay. One, the the butter the monarch butterfly only lays eggs on milkweed leaves. Right. Right. So if you want to have them reproduce, you better have milkweed. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is they eat the milkweed leaves. The caterpillars do because that makes them poisonous to all kinds of things that would want to eat them, like birds. And they'll upcheck them, and they won't eat them again. And so that whole black and orange look they have, then the other insects that imitate that, so that they look poisonous. And I'm thinking about the, the is queen. it the beetle on swamp milkweed that has yes, that? the the milkweed beetle, the milkweed beetles orange yeah. and black, just like them. The tussock moth um, caterpillars are orange and black and white and fuzzy. And you'll see those on your milkweed all the time. Queen butterflies are also a, a monarch mimic, as is the viceroy. But yes. the viceroy does not eat milkweed. The queen butterfly does eat milkweed. But if you want queen butterflies in your yard, you also want Greg's mist flower. So try to find Greg's mist flower because there's a compound in the mist flower that male queen butterflies need in order to mate. And so you're talking about these these queen butterflies and Greg's mist flower. I do not think that they are much around Indiana. I I would have to go look, but that 
just does not ring any bells. And I know I looked up Miss Greg's Miss Flower when you talked about it a couple episodes again. So I. Uh, we do have monarchs in common. Let's just say that. We definitely have monarchs we in do. common. We do. I don't think you guys have queen butterflies at all. I think it's a southern butterfly, and Greg's Miss Flower is definitely a southern plant. Yeah. Um, well, when you talk to the queen butterfly, if it has a southern accent, we know it's not from here. There you go, unless it's from southern <laughs> Indiana or southern Indianapolis, <laughs> like our friend. He sounds like he's from Georgia. Anyway, I digress. So, milkweed tussock I'm sorry, I just lost my, I can't talk. Milkweed tussock moths, the large milkweed bug, and the small milkweed bug all use milkweed. And then there's a whole host of insects that use it for a nectar plant, an adult nectar plant. Yeah, and the interesting thing is the monarch is not relying upon milkweed for nectar. Again, it needs leaves to lay its eggs on, and it needs the leaves to turn itself poisonous. Right. But nectar sources, and that's where we want to talk about, you know, you need a ton of different nectar sources in your flower garden. You want them to be blooming from spring all the way through till the end of fall so that there's something there for everybody. So that's, I think, really a key thing to think about. It is. They will sip from milkweed, but they're not that interested in it. Actually, wasps love the they love the blossoms. Honeybees do too, um, but they get caught. They get tangled up in them uh, because of the way they're made. So sometimes that causes them problems. So I was also going to say that milkweed brings in predator insects like ladybugs and lacewings. And you will see, cool. like, if you lift a leaf and it's the middle of summer and you are really looking for eggs, you will also see lacewing eggs because they hang down on a little gossamer thread. And it's a little white egg uh-huh. at the bottom of it. It's very cool. I did and, not know that. And there's also an aphid that is specific to, or it seems to me it's specific to the milkweed. It's orange, and it's very, very irritating. At least it's orange while it's on the milkweed, kind of an orangey green. And then you're going to, so I got a question over the over the weekend on Instagram, and a lady said, oh, my gosh, the aphids are driving me crazy on my milkweed. What do I do? And I said, I take the milkweed in one hand, my handheld sprayer in the other, and I just spray the heck out of those leaves, the undersides of them. But first, uh-huh. I check for lacewing eggs and monarch eggs. If I find monarch eggs or lacewings, I might smush the aphids because you don't want to rinse off your other creatures. You do not. But you don't have to have pesticides. If you have to use a pesticide because you just think you have to, you can use insecticidal soap. But my hope is that by you know, spraying those aphids, I'll attract ladybugs who will lay eggs. And then we'll have lions to eat the aphids. Yeah. And you know, I, the, the longer I garden, the less I worry about insect damage, unless it's like a complete defoliation by your friends, the Japanese beetles. Yeah. And they're causing some defoliation in my garden right now, but you know what? They're going to be gone soon. And that's what I tell myself. Well, they haven't arrived here yet. They'll be, they'll come up the, about the third week in June. They'll rise up out of the grass, the, those little larvae of pupated, and they'll rise up, and you can just see them, and you're thinking, okay, here you come. But I, I just, the older I get, the more I'm like, I don't care. And I went to my sister, my youngest sister had me come over to show her a couple of things about pruning. Uh, yeah, take off the dead branches. That was about the advice I gave her. 
but they had a rose that had died after they had sprayed it. He said, well, it was kind of on its way out. And I said, well, what were you spraying it for? And it's like this, you know, I just thought we needed to spray it because it was dying. And I'm like, well, it's dead now. And I would send that spray right back to the big A where you bought it. Tell them it didn't work. It killed your rose. And then I looked around their yard. They have all kinds of different flowers. They have some, you know, my sister's not mowing patches of lawn because she wants the clover to grow for the bees. And I says, just put all the sprays away. You don't need them at all. Not in this garden. Not at all. Put them away. Throw them away. Yeah, I I actually posted about um, how to attract visitors to your garden on Instagram about three posts ago. It was really popular. And one of the things I said is you have to get used to imperfection. True that. True that. So quickly, we'll just go over this very quickly. If you want to attract other gardener visitors and monarchs, as Carol said, don't use pesticides. Um, plant more native plants. Monarchs get nectar from a variety of flowers, as do other creatures. Simple flowers are best. Um, simple flowers are easier for creatures to get into. So double flowering hollyhocks are not as good as single flowering hollyhocks. That's just one example. Um, plant more milkweed in a number of areas in your garden so that adult butterflies can find it because they can see it from the sky. They're pretty amazing. And then grow plants for adult insects and their larvae, which are their children. So, you know, Carol, I see it down here where I wrote, get used to imperfection. And Carol wrote, ha ha, if you're a gardener and you haven't gotten used to imperfection, then well, I'll offer some virtual conferencing sessions for you, conferencing sessions for you. That's right. I could, I could, I will do virtual conferencing sessions. I will charge for these. If you're thinking that everything has to be perfect, then we'll just get online and I'll tell you you're not, well, no, I, I am not <laughs> certified in any way to provide this counseling, but I will hold your hand and tell you it's okay to have imperfection. For a price. It is. It is. And I do the same thing. I mean, basically, that's what garden coaching is, is walking around helping people solve their problems in the most nonviolent way. There you go. So we can make a difference in our gardens, and we can really make a difference in town. I mean, I live out in the country, so I have a huge variety of moths and butterflies out here, partly because I've worked really hard at it, but you can do it in town, too. That's true. And Dee, one last thing I'll say, you know, out front of this window where I'm sitting, I took out, I shouldn't say tore out, I dug out those three bobo hydrangeas. They're doing fine where I put them. I've planted some reblooming sunflowers. I put some echinacea, some yellow. I've got some agastache that's blue. And I, I feel like the birds like it better that I've done this. They do like it better. And so I like it better. I like it better too. And you're also going to have to get used to the fact that wasps and birds eat a lot of caterpillars. And it's okay because nature lays a lot of caterpillars. There you go. Why don't you hit us with that next quote? We'll go into the vegetable garden topic. We delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but rarely admit the changes it has gone through to achieve that beauty. Maya Angelou. Very nice quote. Yeah, the butterfly goes through quite a bit. And it's interesting, we'll get to it in a little bit, so many interesting things about butterflies. But you decide we should talk about goji berries, and I'm going to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show, as they say, because I have never grown goji berries. I know they sell them in, you know, like dried goji berry stuff in health food stores. 
It is a vine. Yeah. I know that much, but uh, go up for mm-hmm. go for it, Dee. Tell us about the goji berry. It's a big, bushy, flowering, viney plant thing. I'm not growing it. I hate it with a passion. Why are we talking about it? Because I want to warn people before they get one. This is one of the few trial plants I got, and I won't say who it's from because I might hurt their feelings. But I got a trial plant of goji berries because that was going to be the it fruit of the year. And I got it after we were at Garden Calm, and I... The first year was fine. The second year was a nightmare. The third year was, oh my gosh, a bigger nightmare. It was like the blob. It tried to take over my garden. These, they sucker. Um, you find their, you find the sprouts, you know, the stems coming up in far other places. Anyway, I dug that sucker out. I actually sprayed it with the big R to get rid of it because it was trying to take over my garden in three years. So this uh, goji berry, we should say, is Lyceum barbarum, and uh, there's also some Lycia chinensis. It is not native to the United States. It is from China. And so we're going to say, do not plant goji berries in your, in your garden. Even Dee with her seven acres yeah. had no room for a wild goji berry plant. Um, even our friend in Indiana, who, <laughs> who had a blog for a long time, and where he planted it too. And he said the same thing. So I'm going to say it does this in more than one climate. It wasn't just my climate. And I, I would, I, that's one of the few things that I would say, just don't do it. Don't plant it. It took me a long time to get it out of my yard. And so I, um, I said it was a vine, but I'm reading your description. This is how much I know about goji plant. I did know it was in the Solanaceae family. Slightly thorny, deciduous, woody shrub, typically three to six feet tall when cultivated and pruned, though plants can reach 12 feet tall in their natural state. Okay, mm-hmm. well, that's going to be a short discussion. So we just said no go to goji berry. Just go buy them dried at the health food store. It takes a long time to get the berries, and they don't taste very good, I don't think, in their fresh state. They're full of seeds. Just eat them dried. They're delicious and good for you, but I just don't think that they need to grow in your garden. Now, if someone wants to come on and say they love, not come on the deal, but come tell me that they love them, I'll report that back later. But I thought they were the worst thing that I, one of the worst things I ever got. The only plant I've ever gotten is a trial plant that I really wish had not happened. Well, here's something else you found out from Penn State uh, Cooperative Extension. Attempts to grow goji berries producti- in production gardens in the United States. The largest scale attempt was in the east around Ontario. They had four acres under cultivation as many as 18 acres under cultivation at one point in California, meaning that nobody's grown in the United States at all. There's reason for that. So no go goji berry. No, just remember no go goji berry. That's our little mantra. No. And it's ugly. Oh, (laughs) we have just trashed this baby all. (laughs) It probably has some health benefits, but we have just trashed it all the pieces. I'm going to do the next quote. I'm going to lift this podcast out of its, aura of hatred and we're going to talk about we're going to we're going (laughs) to we're going to go up we're going to go to something better it is blue butterfly day here in spring and with these sky flakes down in flurry on flurry there is more unmixed color on the wing than flowers will show for days unless they hurry 
But these are flowers that fly and all but sing. And now from having ridden out desire, they lie closed over in the wind and cling, where wheels, wheels have freshly sliced the April mire. Robert Frost, Blue Butterfly Day. I should have practiced that. That's a very. That's okay. I'm sorry. I threw it in on you. I didn't see and it I, earlier you know, in the notes, and I thought, did she change some? I changed several of the quotes because I found them in our book, which is the language of butterflies: how thieves, hoarders, scientists, and other obsessives unlock the secrets of the world's favorite insect by Wendy Williams. And I just want to give you kudos because. It was you who found this book. I did. I found it. Because you read that other book. Well, I found this book because I was browsing books at a bookstore, the Barnes & Noble, and I saw it, and I thought, oh, that looks interesting. And I checked it out from my library on the Kindle, because I do that. I don't buy every book. I, You know, you can't. So I showed you the picture of it last week, and I had just started oh, reading right. it. I said, Dee, this looks pretty good. It's a giant yeah. rabbit hole, as you discovered. I mean, I was late to come record the podcast because I was still reading it. I lost track of time. I got up this morning at 6 a.m. and I started reading at 7 and I read straight for three hours. I rarely do that with any kind of nature book because usually they are written in such a way that it takes you a long time to digest the information, right? So I have to dip in them and dip out. I love this author. Oh my gosh, she's a good writer. I'm going to find her other books because she has other nature-related books. But she tells stories, and, you know, she goes back in history, and I just uh, found out all kinds of stuff, learned about a couple of uh, women scientists from way back. I mean, we're talking way back. 16th century, 17th century, 18th century. Well, one, yeah, and Charlotte Hill wasn't technically a scientist, she was a homesteader that married at 13 and had a whole passel of children. We aren't told how many, but she lived in the fluorescent shale Lagerstadt of late Eocene, Colorado. So it's an area now that is a national park. Um, and thank goodness they preserved it. And yes. because it's the one place I think in the world that has this type of shale with insects that are of this um, clear. And the famous thing about it is the very first famous thing was the, I'm probably butchering this, but Prodryas Persephone. And it's a very, and you guys should look that up. And that's one thing I was going to suggest about this book. Even though it's very easy to read, has wonderful stories, I was constantly looking stuff up. So I think it is a good book for the Kindle. I'm actually reading it on the you know, the player on your computer, because I wanted to go see what she was talking about. It's a brush-footed butterfly that is extinct, and it's a perfect rendition of it in fossils. And so Charlotte Hill found that, found a bunch of other ones, sold them to a guy whose last name was Scredder, and it's the, ma it's the beginning of the collection at Harvard. Right, Of entomology. Right. And, and Wendy uh, Williams tells the story about how this almost became a developed area, and it's like literally at the ninth, it, what do they call that, the 23rd hour, the, the last hour, they signed the legislation it, that turned it into a national park, the 11th hour. I mean, hour, there were bulldozers. Yeah, 11th hour. Yeah. The bulldozers were poised on the property ready to just rake this up, and 
thank God they didn't. And also beer, because they gave beer to the guys driving the bulldozers and said, hang on a minute. Yeah. And then they went and got it finally, you know, signed. So that we talked earlier about how, um, how long have butterflies been on the earth? So the oldest butterfly fossils are 56 million years old, and they're encased in amper in the Baltic Sea. But the interesting thing is, is that moths predate them by way, way back. Yeah. And it was only after flowers came into the world that butterflies, that moths, some of them became butterflies. I mean, it, it is the most, and so, so it's about ecology and ha- and mutualism, you know, the idea that flowers need butterflies, butterflies need flowers. And so, you know, moths, although moths like flowers, and some of them do need flowers, they don't all need flowers. So this, there were moths before there were butterflies. I, I can't tell you how much I loved this and learning about all these women. Yes. And the thing is, uh, a lot of the book then does focus on the research related to monarch butterflies. And what yes. was kind of fascinating to me that it's like within my lifetime that they've discovered most things about the monarch butterfly that people didn't really know, like where they went in the wintertime. Right. And, and because of a woman named Maria Sibylla Marion, she was a 17th century woman girl. I said girl because she was 17 when she started this. She's the one who discovered ecology and she discovered ecology because she loved butterflies. And so they traced that back to her. And for a long time, both of these women, their names were lost to history. But now men are like, yeah, Scredder got all of his specimens from Charlotte Hill. And if it weren't for Maria, we wouldn't have you know, we wouldn't have ecology. It would have taken a lot longer to figure it out. And her beautifully rendered um, well, we can talk more about her later because she's really my rabbit hole. I went down a okay. rabbit hole about let's, her. Let's talk about Maria. But anyway, the, the book is, once again, The Language of Butterflies, How Thieves, Hoarders, Scientists, and Other Obsessive Unlock the Secret of the World's Favorite Insect by Wendy Williams. We'll leave links to bookshop.org and also Amazon or, you know, go to your library and check it out. We thought it was wonderful, fun, fun read. Happy to have found it. And those are affiliate links. So if you guys click on them and buy anything, it does help us maintain the podcast. Even if you buy laundry detergent at Amazon. Okay. Yeah. And we don't mind. Go ahead. You're up with the next quote, D. A gold curtain parts and a rain of golden sequins falls before you. You enter a forest chamber where every surface, ground, rocks, and trees is covered by butterflies. It is a world of butterflies filling the air as you are entirely enveloped by golden wings. And that's from Dr. Robert Michael Pyle. A portion of that was from the book. And he was actually doing an interview with the, I think, the New York Times. And the what he was talking about was Mexico, where beautiful monarchs overwinter. I should say the eastern monarchs overwinter. And so he is an American lepidopterist. He's a writer, a teacher, and founder of the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Converse Conservation, which I actually give to every year. Very nice. Very that nice takes quote. us into our dirt, which is about monarchs. You found the dirt. Go ahead. So we've got some good news about the monarchs. Um, I would say it's qualified good news. There was a report that came out from, I want to say it's from 
World Wildlife Org, but I think it's actually from Journey North, but World Wildlife, that we, the links to them. Anyway, the Eastern Monarchs overwintering, overwintering in Mexico had a 35% increase over the previous year, which is good news. Um, there was a problem, I think it was last year, we had a really late freeze that dipped down into Mexico and killed some of them. So the Monarch Butterfly Biosphere Reserve grew from 5.919 acres in December 2020 to 7.02 acres in December 2021. And since they can't count each butterfly, there's too many of them, they measured the area of forest that they occupy in the trees. And this is where most um, eastern monarchs go, and that's why it has to be protected in Mexico. I was supposed to go to that, but then my baby granddaughter was born. So I actually canceled my trip. I may now go to Pismo Beach and visit the western monarchs. Yeah, that sounded fascinating, too. Another thing of reading the book, and this will go into our rabbit holes, is I'll call it like butterfly fever. There are people that become rather obsessed with butterflies, in particular butterflies. And so we don't know about anything about people becoming obsessed with anything, (coughs) violas. Do we, D? No, we do not. (laughs) I thought I was pretty obsessed by butterflies. Until oh, you're a lightweight girl. Book. You are lightweight. I am. I mean, I've raised monarchs. I've done a lot of things, but I am not like these people. I do not spend all my money and then go live in another country. Do you tag your monarchs? I do have tags for my monarchs. I have never tagged one. I need to do it. But to do that, I'll have to get a butterfly net. Um, so that I can capture some of them in the wild. There's tagging is also, there's been some interesting thing about that in the last year or so. A lot of people who tagged raised their monarchs indoors. And so there's been a lot of study about whether monarchs raised indoors do as well as monarchs in the wild. So there's a big yeah. study about that right now. So is it, you know, it's easier to tag your own monarchs that you've raised because they literally can't fly yet. So. Right. So let's talk more about Maria. That's my rabbit hole. Yeah. Because because of Maria Sibylla Marion, I started really looking into her and there is a society and this society is either in Austria or Germany and you can go to their site, which we will link to. And it's not just to educate the public about Maria, but it's also to encourage investigations related to her life and work. She was not only a lep- lepidopterist, She was also an illustrator, and she kept meticulous notes, and she's the first one to record 150 butterflies from egg all the way to adult butterfly. And this is by the way, she's the one that discovered the life cycle of the butterfly. People didn't know that. That's why she's the mother of ecology. And and Darwin knew about her. I just read that part in the book. Darwin knew about her, but he never acknowledges her, does he? So she's very, very interesting. All of her work was done in watercolor and pen and ink. And this was because women were not allowed to use oil-based paints at the time. It was against the law. So she learned how to work in watercolor. She's a fascinating, fascinating person. And, um, the the reason it's so important that she figured out the life cycle of the butterfly is that she showed that the whole entire world works together. Up until that point, people thought caterpillars were gross and completely separate from adult butterflies. They thought adult butterflies just emerged 
you know, just emerged. They didn't understand that they started out as caterpillars, well, really as eggs. And the same thing with honeybees. I mean, men thought for the longest time, partly because of Aristotle, that honeybees just emerged whole from bull, a bull's carcass. That, and I've known that for a while that they thought that, and it makes absolutely no sense. They also, the thinking of a complete hierarchy of people and organisms and, you know, that if someone was born poor, they were meant to be poor and that was their lot in life and there was no raising yourself up to be better than what you were. And the same with the natural world, you know, of a worm is a worm is a worm. And so when she discovered the connectiveness of all this stuff, that really changed everybody's thinking. Yes, and then there's another website that is devoted to her work. We'll link to that too. Um, and it it's also talks a lot about blue morpho butterflies and the whole blue pigment debate, which we have touched on here before. We're also going to link to my newsletter. It was the, I think it was the very first newsletter I wrote, which was called Color Me Blue, which was all about the blue pigment debate and whether there is such a thing as the color blue or not. So that was my giant rabbit hole. But like we talked about earlier before we got on here, there are so many rabbit holes in that book. You could just take one little section and go from there. Like You could. Like the, I'm, I'm not going to say it wrong, proboscis. I did say it right. Like the proboscis on the butterflies, I learned that it yes. is not a tube, not really. And it's also not a straw. I thought it was a straw. That was so fascinating. And, you know, they said that guy got that research grant, thought it would take him like, you know, a summer. Ten years later, he's still researching and figuring out how that thing works. It was just amazing. And partly because a mo- it was like a mobility engineer, a guy who studies how to make things work better. He figured out really quickly that there was no way that the butterfly had muscles in its face to pull that up. And he was like, so how do they do that then? Right. And he's the one who helped the other guy. I'm telling you, it's a great book. Okay, it is. your turn. So my rabbit hole, <laughs> I'm still, I'm back into Aunt Dimity. But the, the good news for the book is the next book in the series was on hold. You know, somebody had yes. it. These books take about three hours each to read. They're very light reading, fun, light mm-hmm. reading. I'm like, how do you have that book out for a week? So I went and checked out like the next four books after it. And there, you know, I have those all in my library. People are thinking, how does it take her so long to read? But anyway, because the Andemity books weren't available, I was able to read the Butterfly book. And then right as I finished the Butterfly book, the Dimity books became available again, sort of serendipity. Creamed through two more of those, checked out another five. So, you know, I don't want to be stuck again. But anyway, you know, summer. I was thinking about this morning, summertime... I don't know how you were brought up, but summertime was we would read and try new craft things that we had never tried before. Yeah. And that, that seems to be ingrained in me that summertime is for reading. I'm thinking about all kinds of craft activities I can do. still want to build my squirrel table, by the way, <laughs> from last week's episode. <laughs> I'll let you know. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead with the next quote and so we can do our garden commissions. So it turns out if you plant it, they will come. And that is Wendy Williams referring to monarchs milkweed. Yes. Yeah, she was referring to milkweed and monarchs. Um, And also trees, because certain trees provide them shelter from winds 
Yep. And so trees are really important too. And it's a whole section on a golf course out in California. And I, I just, I don't know. I, that was the best book I've read in a long time. So garden commissions, I'm going to finish cutting back those asters and other perennials that are now gigantic and smothering their neighbors. I'm talking to you. Um, mountain mint, common mountain mint. I hate that plant, but the pollinators love it. So pulled a lot of it out. Got to pull out a lot more. And then people are asking me if I'm going to open the garden this summer. No, I'm not. I'm still grieving my mother's death and I'm just not in the mood. However, and this is a big however, I might open in September or late August when the butterflies come. That might be good. Yeah, I might do it then because here's the deal. I want people to see what my garden looks like. I always show them in pictures what it looks like when the butterflies really start. I mean, I have butterflies now, but it'll just get thicker and thicker. And I want them to see what a variety of butterflies you can have in your garden. So for that reason, I might open in August or September. So stay tuned. I will stay tuned. In the meantime, I'm going to start cutting back asters, goldenrod, moms. They are getting pretty big. I have some shrubs to trim. Um, a lot of things I could be doing, should be doing, but I'll probably be reading and doing crafts and things that I should, anyway. It'll all get done or it won't get done, and it's it's probably okay. So, and next week, Dee, remind me, I want to talk about living on the edge, and that's a teaser. Okay. And with that, we want to thank you for listening to The Garden Angelist. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about us. Also, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss anything. And if you listen to Apple Podcasts, we'd love a five-star review that helps us get noticed by others. Could you also share our podcast with your gardening friends? Word of mouth is still the best way to get the word out there. Yes, and be sure and check out our show notes for links to for more information about today's topics, plus links to our own websites. And if you want to help support us, use those affiliate links. If you buy something after clicking through on them, we're in a small commission and it costs you nothing. It was lovely as always to chat with you over the garden gate today. Bye until next week. Goodbye, everybody.